As someone who's been through the ups and downs of a weight loss journey, I understand the frustrations. Counting calories while pushing through workouts, it's exhausting. That's why if I had the opportunity to try Row Body, I'd be all in. Why? Because Row Body offers access to the most popular weight loss shots on the market alongside personalized lifestyle changes. And as I'm quite a homebody, I love how you can sign up online. So no scheduling a doctor's appointment, no commute to the doctor's office, and no waiting rooms. Go to row.co slash snoozecast. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. That's R-O dot C-O slash snoozecast. episode is brought to you by The Setting Moon. Tonight, we'll read the next part to The Princess and the Goblin, a children's fantasy novel by George MacDonald. If you'd like an easy way to listen to these continuing episodes in order, go to snoozecast.com series. When we left off, Curdy comes to regret his rudeness in not believing the princess as his parents have helped him to understand. He sets about to protect her by figuring out the goblin's devious plans. Let's get cozy. Close your eyes. Relax your body into the softness of your bed. should like to remark, for the sake of princes and princesses in general, that it is a low and contemptible thing to refuse to confess a fault or even an error. If a true princess has done wrong, she is always uneasy until she has had an opportunity of throwing the wrongness away from her by saying, I did it and I wish I had not, and I am sorry for having done it. So you see, there is some ground for supposing that Curdie was not a minor only, but a prince as well. 
Many such instances have been known in the world's history. At length, however, Curdie began to see signs of a change in the proceedings of the goblin excavators. They were going no deeper, but had commenced running on a level, and he watched them, therefore, more closely than ever. All at once, one night, coming to a slope of very hard rock, they began to ascend along the inclined plane of its surface. Having reached its top, they went again on a level for a night or two, after which they began to ascend once more and kept on at a pretty steep angle. At length, Curdie judged it time to transfer his observation to another quarter, and the next night he did not go to the mine at all, but, leaving his pickaxe and clue at home, and taking only his usual lumps of bread and peace pudding, went down the mountain to the king's house. He climbed over the wall and remained in the garden the whole night, creeping on hands and knees from one spot to the other and lying at full length with his ear to the ground listening. But he heard nothing except the tread of the men-at-arms as they marched about, whose observation, as the night was cloudy and there was no moon, he had little difficulty in avoiding. For several following nights, he continued to haunt the garden and listen but with no success. At length, early one evening, whether it was that he had got careless of his own safety or that the growing moon had become strong enough to expose him, his watching came to a sudden end. He was creeping from behind the rock where the stream ran out, for he had been listening all round it in the hope it might convey to his ear some indication of the whereabouts of the goblin miners. When just as he came into the moonlight on the lawn, a whiz in his ear and a blow upon his leg startled him. He instantly squatted in the hope of eluding further notice. But when he heard the sound of running feet, he jumped up to take the chance of escape by flight. He fell, however, for the bolt of a crossbow had wounded his leg. He was instantly laid hold of by two or three of the men-at-arms. It was useless to struggle, and he submitted in silence. It's a boy, cried several of them together in a 
tone of amazement. I thought it was one of those demons. What are you about here? Going to have a little rough usage, apparently, said Curdie, laughing, as the men shook him. Impertinence will do you no good. You have no business here in the king's grounds, and if you don't give a true account of yourself, you shall fare as a thief. Why, what else could he be, said one. He might have been after a lost kid, you know, suggested another. I see no good in trying to excuse him. He has no business here, anyhow. Let me go away, then, if you please, said Curdie. But we don't please, not except you give a good account of yourself. I don't feel quite sure whether I can trust you, said Curdie. We are the king's own men-at-arms, said the captain courteously, for he was taken with Curdie's appearance and courage. Well, I will tell you all about it, if you will promise to listen to me and not do anything rash. I call that cool, said one of the party, laughing. He'll tell us what mischief he was about if we promise to do as he please. I was about no mischief, said Curdie. But ere he could say more, he turned faint and fell senseless on the grass. Then first they discovered that the bolt they had shot, taking him for one of the goblin creatures, had wounded him. They carried him into the house and laid him down in the hall. The report spread that they had caught a robber, and the servants crowded in to see the villain. Amongst the rest came the nurse. The moment she saw him, she exclaimed with indignation, I declare it's the same young rascal of a miner that was rude to me and the princess on the mountain. He actually wanted to kiss the princess. I took good care of that, the wretch. And he was prowling about, was he? Just like his impudence. The princess being fast asleep, she could misrepresent at her pleasure. When he heard this, the captain although he had considerable doubt of its truth, resolved to keep Curdie a prisoner until they could search into the affair. So, after they had brought him round a little and attended to his wound, which was rather a bad one, they laid him, still exhausted, upon a mattress in a disused room one of those already so often mentioned, and locked the door and left him. He passed a troubled night, and in the morning they found him talking wildly. In the evening he came to himself, but felt very weak, and his leg hurt. 
wondering where he was, and seeing one of the men-at-arms in the room, he began to question him and soon recalled the events of the preceding night. And he was himself unable to watch any more, so he told the soldier all he knew about the goblins and begged him to tell his companions and stir them up to watch with tenfold vigilance. But whether it was that he did not quite talk coherently, or that the whole thing appeared incredible, certainly the man concluded that Curdie was only raving still, and tried to coax him into holding his tongue. This, of course, annoyed Curdie dreadfully, who now felt in his turn what it was not to be believed, and the consequence was that his fever returned, and by the time when, at his persistent entreaties, the captain was called, there could be no doubt that he was raving. They did for him what they could, and promised everything he wanted, but with no intention of fulfillment. At last, he went to sleep. And when, at length, his sleep grew profound and peaceful, they left him, locked the door again, and withdrew, intending to revisit him early in the morning. Chapter 26 the Goblin Miners. That same night, several of the servants were having a chat together before going to bed. What can that noise be? said one of the servants, who had been listening for a moment or two. I've heard it the last two nights, said the cook. If there were any about the place, I should have taken it for rats, but my Tom keeps them far enough. I've heard, though, said the scullery maid, that rats move about in great company sometimes. There may be an army of them invading us. I've heard the noises yesterday and today, too. It'll be grand, then, for my Tom and Mrs. Housekeeper's Bob, said the cook. They'll be friends for once in their lives and fight on the same side. I'll engage Tom and Bob together. We'll put to flight any number of rats. It seems to me, said the nurse, that the noises are much too loud for that. I've heard them all day. and My princess has asked me several times what they could be. Sometimes they sound like distant thunder, and sometimes like the noises you hear in the mountain from those miners underneath. I shouldn't wonder, said the cook, if it was the miners after all. They may have come on some hole in the mountain 
through which the noises reached us. They're always boring and blasting and breaking, you know. As he spoke, there came a great rolling rumble beneath them, and the house quivered. They all started up and, rushing to the hall, found the gentleman-at-arms in consternation also. They had sent to wake their captain, who said from their description that it must have been an earthquake, an occurrence which, although very rare in that country, had taken place almost within the century, and then went to bed again, strange to say, and fell fast asleep without once thinking of Curdie or associating the noises they had heard with what he had told them. He had not believed Curdie. If he had, he would at once have thought of what he had said and would have taken precautions. As they heard nothing more, they concluded that Sir Walter was right and that the danger was over for perhaps another hundred years. The fact, as discovered afterwards, was that the goblins had, in working up a second sloping face of stone, arrived at a huge block which lay under the cellars of the house, within the line of the foundations. It was so round that when they succeeded, after hard work, in dislodging it without blasting, it rolled thundering down the slope with a bounding, jarring roll which shook the foundations of the house. The goblins were themselves dismayed at the noise, for they knew by careful spying and measuring, that they must now be very near, if not under the king's house, and they feared giving an alarm. They, therefore, remained quiet for a while, and when they began to work again, they no doubt thought themselves very fortunate in coming upon a vein of sand which filled a winding fissure in the rock on which the house was built. By scooping this away, they came out in the king's wine cellar. No sooner did they find where they were than they scurried back again, like rats into their holes, and, running at full speed, to the goblin palace, announced their success to the king and queen with shouts of triumph. In a moment, the goblin royal family and the whole goblin people were on their way in hot haste to the king's house, each eager to have a share in the glory of carrying off that same night 
the Princess Irene. The queen went stumping along in one shoe of stone and one of skin. This could not have been pleasant, and my readers may wonder that, with such skillful workmen about her, she had not yet replaced the shoe carried off by Curdie. As the king, however, had more than one ground of objection to her stone shoes, he no doubt took advantage of the discovery of her toes and threatened to expose her deformity if she had another maid. I presume he insisted on her being content with skin shoes and allowed her to wear the remaining granite one on the present occasion only because she was going out to war. They soon arrived in the king's wine cellar, and regardless of its huge vessels, of which they did not know the use, proceeded at once, but as quietly as they could, to force the door that led upwards. Chapter 27 the goblins in the king's house. When Curdie fell asleep, he began at once to dream. He thought he was ascending the mountainside from the mouth of the mine, whistling and singing, ring, bod, bang, when he came upon a woman and child who had lost their way. And from that point, he went on dreaming everything that had happened to him since he thus met the princess and Ludi. How he had watched the goblins. How he had been taken by them. How he had been rescued by the princess. Everything, indeed, until he was wounded, captured, and imprisoned by the men-at-arms and now he thought he was lying wide awake where they had laid him, when suddenly he heard a great thundering sound. The cobs are coming, he said. They didn't believe a word I told them. The cobs will be carrying off the princess from under their stupid noses, but they shan't, that they shan't. He jumped up, as he thought, and began to dress, but, to his dismay, found that he was still lying in bed. Now then, I will, he said. Here goes. I am up now. But yet again, he found himself snug in bed. Twenty times he tried, and twenty times he failed, for in fact he was not awake, only dreaming that he was. At length, in an agony of despair, fancying he heard the goblins all over the house, he gave a great cry. Then there came, as he thought, a hand upon the lock of his door, it opened, and, looking up, 
he saw a lady with white hair carrying a silver box in her hand and she entered the room. She came to his bed, he thought, stroked his head and face with cool, soft hands, took the dressing from his leg, rubbed it with something that smelt like roses, and then waved her hands over him three times. At the last wave of her hands, everything vanished. He felt himself sinking into the profoundest slumber and remembered nothing more until he awoke in earnest. The setting moon was throwing a feeble light through the casement, and the house was full of uproar. There was soft, heavy, multitudinous stamping, a clashing and clanging of weapons, the voices of men and the cries of women, mixed with a bellowing which sounded victorious. The cobs were in the house. He sprang from his bed, hurried on some of his clothes, not forgetting his shoes, which were armed with nails. Then, spying an old hunting knife or short sword hanging on the wall, he caught it and rushed down the stairs, guided by the sounds of strife, which grew louder and louder. When he reached the ground floor, he found the whole place swarming. All the goblins of the mountain seemed gathered there. He rushed amongst them, shouting, One, two, hit and hew, three, four, blessed and bore. And with every rhyme, he came down a great stamp upon a foot, cutting at the same time their faces, executing, indeed, a sword dance of the wildest description. Away scattered the goblins in every direction, into closets, upstairs, into chimneys, up on rafters, and down to the cellars. Curdie went on stamping and slashing and singing, but saw nothing of the people of the house until he came to the great hall in which, the moment he entered it, arose a great goblin shout, the last of the men-at-arms, the captain himself, was on the floor, buried beneath a wallowing crowd of goblins. For, while each knight was busy defending himself as well as he could, the queen had attacked his legs and feet with her horrible granite shoe, and he was soon down but the captain had got his back to the wall and stood out longer. The goblins would have won out, 
but their king had given orders to carry them away alive. And over each of them, in twelve groups, was standing a knot of goblins, while as many as could find room were sitting upon their prostrate bodies. Curdie burst in, dancing and gyrating and stamping and singing, like a small incarnate whirlwind. Where tis all a hole, sir, never can be holes. Why should their shoes have soles, sir, when they've got no soles? But she upon her foot, sir, has a granite shoe. The strongest leather boot, sir, six would soon be through. The queen gave a howl of rage and dismay, and before she recovered her presence of mind, Curdie, having begun with the group nearest him, had eleven of the knights on their legs again. Stamp on their feet, he cried as each man rose, and in a few minutes the hall was nearly empty, the goblins running from it as fast as they could, howling and shrieking and limping, and cowering every now and then as they ran to cuddle their wounded feet in their hard hands, or to protect them from the frightful stamp-stamp of the armed men. And now, Curdie approached the group which, in trusting in the queen and her shoe, kept their guard over the prostrate captain. The king sat on the captain's head, but the queen stood in front, like an infuriated cat, with her perpendicular eyes gleaming green and her hair standing half up from her horrid head. Her heart was quaking, however, and she kept moving about her skin-shod foot with nervous apprehension. When Curdie was within a few paces, she rushed at him made one tremendous stamp at his opposing foot, which happily he withdrew in time and caught him round the waist to dash him on the marble floor. But just as she caught him, he came down with all the weight of his iron-shod shoe upon her skin-shod foot, and with a hideous howl, she dropped him, squatted on the floor, and took her foot in both of her hands. Meanwhile, the rest rushed on the king and the bodyguard, sent them flying, and lifted the prostrate captain, who was all but squeezed to oblivion. It was some moments before he recovered breath and consciousness. Where's the princess? cried Curdie again and again. No one knew, and off they all rushed in search of her.
through every room in the house they went, but nowhere was she to be found. Neither was one of the servants to be seen. But Curdie, who had kept to the lower part of the house, which was now quiet enough, began to hear a confused sound as of a distant hubbub and set out to find where it came from. The noise grew as his sharp ears guided him to a stair and so to the wine cellar. It was full of goblins whom the butler was supplying with wine as fast as he could draw it. While the queen and her party had encountered the men-at-arms, Rabbit, with another company, had gone off to search the house. They captured everyone they met, and when they could find no more, they hurried away to carry them safe to the caverns below. But when the butler, who was amongst them, found that their path lay through the wine cellar, he bethought himself of persuading them to taste the wine, and, as he had hoped, they no sooner tasted than they wanted more. The routed goblins on their way below joined them, and when Curdie entered, they were all with outstretched hands in which were vessels of every description, from saucepan to silver cup, pressing around the butler, who sat at the tap of a huge cask, filling and filling. Curdy cast one glance around the place before commencing his attack and saw in the farthest corner a group of the domestics unwatched but cowering without courage to attempt their escape. Amongst them was the face of Ludie, but nowhere could he see the princess.